the garden. That's the thing that brings me back. It's whether it's playing with somebody in the room, like playing Mario Kart, something like that at a party, or whether it's playing Warcraft with guildmates who I've known for 10 years and I've never met in real life. It's those social connections that I think allow um, games to make people feel less isolated and, and, and give them more of a sense of belonging to a community. This is Dr. Pete Etchells, science writer, psychologist, lecturer, and as of April 2019, author. In terms of research, it was really sort of news stories around whether video games are bad for us, or one in particular which claimed that uh, video games uh, bring about early onset dementia in kids that, that drove my interest in actually doing research in them in the first place. And the book then came out of that research, really. His new book, Lost in a Good Game, looks at why we play video games and what they can do for us, and even tries to answer some of those lingering age-old questions like, do video games make us violent? Yes. No. Wait. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Pete's relationship with video games is linked to a personal loss at a young age. The way that I use games or play them sometimes when I'm feeling low nowadays, I think started at that point in that after we'd had a chat, I went to go and uh, back to, to play in Blake Stone and I, I, wasn't, I wasn't playing it f for the joy of playing that particular game at that point. I was playing it because this horrible thing had just happened and I didn't know how to deal with it and I just needed to give my brain a bit of space, basically, to process that data and figure out what to do next. Whether for escape or just an adventure that the real world can't offer, video games mean different things to everyone. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and as some of you will know, I play a lot of video games, and they're actually a huge part of my career. This week, Pete and I explore the history and current landscape of video games to try to better understand the role they should, could, and actually do play in our society today. This is Chips With Everything. You write very early on that there's an unspoken assumption that allowing a child to play video games, as I obviously did growing up, means depriving them of a supposedly superior childhood spent outdoors. Why do you think that this idea persists? I think there's this idea that going outside is wholesome and healthy and it's going into the countryside and things like that, and that's not actually what the outside world is for a lot of people but I think it also comes from a misunderstanding of what video games are I think um, a lot of people who don't play video games if you watch somebody playing one for the first time it's a really weird experience like, it's quite jarring in a way um, if you don't know what's going on it just looks as though they're completely absorbed on the, into the screen uh, and they're completely oblivious to what's going on around them and I think trying to marry that idea with something that you feel is more wholesome, like going outside, say, it seems like one is inherently good and the other is inherently harmful, and that critically that the two are at tension with each other, but there's some research suggests that that's not the case, that uh, video game play isn't necessarily a displacement activity for going out and other forms of play. In the book, Pete talks us through some of the earlier memories that reflect his love of video games, like a quest he went on to find the time-lost proto-drake. 
which is one of the rarest encounters in the hugely popular massively multiplayer game World of Warcraft. He spent quite a few hours trying to find this dragon, but, as he admits, at the time he didn't really care if he ever actually found it. For me, it was just a way of dealing with other things. It's, it's in the same way that sometimes when you, you go home and you've had a difficult day at work, say, you stick the TV on, but you're not necessarily watching what's going on on the screen. It's just noise. It's just something to pass the time. I think those times when I was trying to find that particular uh, proto-Drake, um, I wasn't necessarily... I mean, to be honest, you can't do anything anyway. You've literally got to wait for the thing, and it might possibly appear at some point if you're really lucky. So it wasn't about doing something in the game, it was just basically having white noise in the background. I was trying, I, I talked very specifically in that chapter about it was um, one of the anniversaries of my dad's death. Um, so I was trying to deal with that. I was trying not to think too much and get lost too much in feeling like I did on the night that he died um, and just sort of get through the day really. His dad died when Pete was 14. He'd lived for several years with motor neuron disease. In the book, Pete talks a lot about playing video games as a way to temporarily escape his grief, but he also talks about the way that death is represented in games. If the player's character in a video game dies, they usually just come back to life so that you can try again. Obviously, this is not the case in the real world. I think death's a mechanic in a game. It essentially acts as a learning experience. It basically tells you, you did this thing wrong, so you need to try it again and do it in a different way in order to, to get better, as it were. And I think if you can look at it in that more of a positive light, then it's a useful thing. I also think there's a, an interesting discussion around how games that really specifically tackle things like death can have an impact on this. On us. So uh, there's a particular game that I talk about in the last chapter of the book, I think, called Last Day of June, that very specifically looks at the consequences of, of death. So I'm not going to spoil the game because it's a brilliant game and everybody should play it, but <laughs> uh, the basic idea is that you play a guy called Carl who lost his wife June in a car crash and most of the game is trying to almost go back in time and change things that happened that day to try and stop the, the crash from happening in the first place. It sounds really morbid and quite wrong in a sense when you explain it like that but it's such a beautiful game and it really eloquently shows what it's like go to go through that sort of grieving process that a lot of us can relate to. In the same chapter where you talk about the anniversary of your dad's death you say games are imperfect things made by and for imperfect beings they're able to mirror and amplify both our foibles and virtues in ways that no other entertainment medium can possibly hope to emulate. Where does that sentiment come from and why did you want to include it? I think part of what I wanted to do with, with the book was change the, the conversation that we have around video games, particularly in public spheres, particularly in the news. They tend to be quite all or nothing conversations, you know, Fortnite's addictive or this game's really bad and can melt your kids' brains or Call of Duty causes early onset dementia and things like that. Or it's the other way where we talk about games that uh, can be used for for the greater good. So Sea Hero Quest, which was a mobile game that came out a couple of years ago, got lots of positive press in the news um, around its abilities to give us new scientific information around um, dementia. But there's a whole grey area in the middle, and I think that's where the conversation around 
video games should be really in that yes for some people they can be a bad thing and they can be harmful yes for some people they can be hugely beneficial but it's not all or nothing and trying to find where we each individually sit between those two extremes i think is where i would like the conversations to start going fast forward some 20 years and pete started another quest he knew why he was playing games but wanted to know what motivated others to begin, he dug into the history of where video games came from and how they've developed over the decades. When you were researching the history of early video games, you took a trip to South Kensington to have a look at the Science Museum's collection of video games and memorabilia, and then later to the National Video Game Arcade, which was previously in Nottingham and is now in Sheffield. What were these trips like? Were they nostalgic for you? They were great, actually. It was... Um, I, I I had this weird delusion about what the Science Museum was going to be like. I had this image that there was going to be this like vast Indiana Jones-like vault with just thousands and thousands of N64s and things like that. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't like that at all. When I first went to the to, to the, the research library to look at the, the the only remaining piece that we've got of um, a, a machine called Nimrod, which was a very early example, arguably, of uh, video games. The the only thing that's left is a booklet. Um, and I was in this really nice, posh, pristine new library, and this book came to me in a in a, a pillow, basically, yeah. and the comfiest book in uh, in London. And it, it couldn't be further from that from that image. Um, interestingly, later on, I went, I did get to look in their proper archives, and it did feel a little bit more like that. There were all of these kind of weird and, and scary looking rooms, and just vast treasure troves of mobile phones and stuff like that. So that was good fun. So if you were going to try and take us back to the dawn of when video games began, would you say that they came about as kind of an accidental byproduct of other things? Partly, I think, yeah. So depending on how you define video games, <laughs> which is the big question, right, um, you can pinpoint any point sort of between 1940 and 1972, <laughs> really. So 1972 was the Magnavox Odyssey, first home games console, um, and Pong, I think, came out first, uh, one of the first arcade games. Computer Space, which I think was the first arcade game, came out in the, the late 60s. Um, I make an argument that you could trace it back to the 50s. There was a, a game called Tennis for Two that was um, developed back then. Uh, that was serendipitous in a way. So that was developed by a guy called um, Willie Higginbottom, who was a physicist. And they had these open days at his laboratory that he worked at. And it was a bit boring. <laughs> so they needed something else for people to, to do while, while other stuff was going on. So he very quickly mocked up this quite realistic, actually, quite realistic te uh, tennis game on a, an oscilloscope. And it was massively popular. Some people would argue that that's not a video game in the traditional sense because um, it was a one-shot thing. And that's where a lot of the stuff from the early 40s and into the 50s came from, is that the games weren't developed to be games themselves. Really, they were developed to showcase the technology on which they were built, the computers which were being developed, and the, the algorithms that they were using to actually implement those sorts of games. The important, One of the important things that those sorts of stories show is that games are really powerful for being for us for allowing us to develop new sorts of things and that's something that we see nowadays in terms of this symbiotic relationship between science and video games video games were were born of they were a product of scientific endeavor in the 40s and 50s and nowadays we're starting to see situations like sea hero quest where people are trying to take advantage of 
how powerful and how immersive video games are in order to further scientific discoveries. Now that you've walked us through the very early history of how video games came to be, can you, Pete Etchells, define exactly what a video game is? <laughs> um, you, oh, it's whatever you want it to be. If it's, <laughs> if it's something that uses an electronic device and it's a game, then it's a video game to me. After the break, we'll dig a little deeper on that question and a few others. And we'll look at the possible future for video games in a society still divided on their capacity to harm or help. People who are actually clinically addicted to video games, a very, very tiny number of people. And if we're thinking that we're seeing it everywhere, we're going to miss those people who actually we need to find and help. We'll be right back. It's time to focus. I think ultimately that ideology is fading, but it will have a sting in the tail, and we see that sometimes with these flare-ups and violence. Today in Focus is the new daily podcast from The Guardian. Join me, Anushka Astana, for the best stories from our journalists around the world. Subscribe now to Today in Focus from The Guardian. Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. This week, I'm chatting to Pete Etchells about his new book, Lost in a Good Game, where he explores all things video games. So there's a really lovely quote from Naomi Alderman in The New Statesman from a few years ago, saying that you need the vocabulary of an art critic to talk about the graphics and the movie critic to talk about the narrative. And I think that's actually a really important point in that we find it very difficult to talk about how to play them and what they are um, and what people do with them. And I think that partly stems from this misunderstanding of what they are if, if you don't play them. I think it also partly stems from the fact that perhaps unlike most other entertainment media, they're really hard to get into. So if you, if you watch a movie for the first time and it's rubbish then the barrier to entry for the next time you watch a movie is pretty low. You just sit there and watch another movie and eventually, hopefully, you might find one that you like and then you might get into movies. With video games, let's you know, if you take console games as an example, so you've got to buy the console, you've got to plug it into your TV, you've got to get all the stuff in the right sockets and you've got to turn it on and then you might have to charge the controllers mm -hmm. and then as soon as you turn it on, it downloads an update yeah. and it looks like <laughs> the thing's broken. And that all happens before you've even put the game in. And I think that feature of games which is unique in a sense coupled with this idea that you have to have quite an esoteric and wide-ranging vocabulary to talk about them in any sort of meaningful way really means that we kind of struggle to define what they are in the first place given that what video games can be is so broad i guess it makes sense that the question of why we play them is also complex so you provide the example of playing world of warcraft to distract yourself from your grief and i know that if i'm feeling anxious then it can help me to kind of quiet my brain for a few hours with the sims 4 or something but through your research did you find a more conclusive answer to why people play not really, no. Um, I think this is a general problem with psychological research on video games in that it's A, it's really hard to do good stuff and B, we're still trying to get to grips with 
the technology, the, the rate at which games come out and improve vastly outstrips the rate at which we can do science on them. So we're always playing catch up, really, and nobody's really thinking about what the the next thing should be that we should be targeting preemptively. We're always kind of trying to figure out retrospectively what's going on. When it comes to the questions around why people play video games, um, a lot of work is focused on what people do in games, um, and then that's a reason for why. Um, which maybe isn't quite correct because what, what what's happened then is that a lot of research has focused on developing player archetypes. Another line in um, psychological research looks at intrinsic motivation, which is if we've got intrinsic motivation to do something, we do it because we enjoy the process of doing it. Um, and there's been an emerging line of research over the past 10 years or so that looks at this in the context of games and it's basically shown that if you... Um, have a game where you're competent at it, you can show competency at it, you're autonomous in it, so you've got some sense of freedom to do what you want, you're not kind of constrained on a on a rail, as it were. And if there's some sort of aspect of relatedness, so you can talk to people or connect with people in some ways, that they tend to be the games that people are most motivated to play. That's not to say that those are the only things that should be included in the game for it to be good, but that by and large people like those sorts of games more that allow allow us to do those sorts of things more. Another issue Pete considers in the book is what it means to be a video game player or gamer. As we mentioned earlier in the show, we don't really have a satisfactory definition for what a video game is, so it can be difficult to determine who counts as a video gamer. Pete talked to video game columnist Tracy King, who says she's had people tell her, you don't look like a gamer, something I also get all the time. Pete has some theories on why society thinks it knows what a gamer should look like. For some reason in the 1990s, this idea started to coalesce around the idea that video gamers were predominantly male. They were predominantly teenage boys, basically. And we kind of got this gamer archetype, archetype of a pasty white teenage boy in his in his room just playing a game on his own and his skin going pasty white bleached by the the blue screen it and was nintendo wasn't it yeah. after the video game crash yeah marketing yeah. the game boy to young boys yeah and then... if you look at the data of, as to who plays video games now that's not that's not everybody so it's it's predominantly the largest market but that might be historically because of these perceptions that we've had It's time for the big question. Are video games bad for us? Yes. No. Wait. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Um, Depends what you mean by video game. Depends what you mean by bad, really. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about it in terms of violent games, whether they cause aggression, the research doesn't seem to suggest that that's anything to worry about, particularly Addiction's a really interesting one, I think. It's something that's on people's minds a lot at the minute. And again, the jury's out in a sense. Uh, We've got a lot of research from the past 30, 40 years that seems to be moving towards this idea that gaming addiction is a thing and it looks a little bit like gambling addiction or um, impulse control disorder or substance uh, use issues. But the problem with that sort of research is that because it's based on things like gambling addiction research. We're not clear yet whether there are any specific aspects of something that we might call gaming addiction that are unique to that, Mm. that aren't just the same things that we use to look at things like gambling addiction. So I'm firmly in the the camp of we've not got enough 
data yet really we don't know the unique aspects of what this sort of uh, problem might look look like and then the problem therefore of the world health organization declaring that gaming disorder is going to be included in icd-11 and things like that last last year is that people think that this is a thing now mm. and they might see certain aspects of it in everybody around them but actually people who are actually clinically addicted to video games a very very tiny number of people and if we're thinking that we're seeing it everywhere we're going to miss those people who actually we need to find and help Pete goes into a lot of detail about the various ways in which people say that video games are bad for us. But he also talks us through the positives, like when video games have been used as a tool for medical research. But the public discourse on video games is still so often very divided. I sometimes tell people that those of us hoping for more nuanced conversations just have to wait. Pete mentions in the book some research that found that those with negative opinions about video games are more likely to be people who don't actually play them which tends to be correlated with age. We already have a new generation of parents who played video games when they were kids, and so they're better equipped to understand their children's interest in them. So I asked Pete if I was right to be optimistic for the future of these conversations. Yeah, I think I'm optimistic about it as well. Um, Yes, in some ways, actually, but maybe no in others, because I think what will inevitably happen is that some other new technology will come out that we all think is the devil, and we all hate that, but video games will be fine because we grew up with them. Um, I think that happens throughout the generations, really. Um, Yeah, I am really optimistic about this idea that people who have an understanding of, of video games and more of a deeper connection with them as they become parents, they maybe will feel more equipped to have those conversations with their kids. So that's that's a good thing. And I think being able to talk to, to kids about games, having that background knowledge will help those sorts of conversations. So yeah, hopefully when it comes to video games in the future, I'm quite hopeful that um, a lot of these worries will go away, but I definitely think they'll just be replaced by something else. You've written a whole book about why you and other people play games, but if you had to sum up what video games mean to you in a couple of sentences, what would you say? I think if you ask me this question, at different times I'll probably come up with different answers to it but I think at the minute the thing that's important for me is the connectedness maybe I'm lucky in this way in that I've had lots of very positive experiences developing new relationships and friendships um, online Um, but that's the thing that brings me back it's whether it's playing with somebody in the room like playing Mario Kart something like that at a party or whether it's playing Warcraft with guild mates who I've known for 10 years and I've never met in real life real life quote unquote (laughs) it's those social connections that i think allow um, games to make people feel less isolated and 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 give them more of a sense of belonging to a community before i let him go i had to ask if pete ever did manage to find that time lost proto drake i'm still looking every now and again (laughs) um I'm really impatient now and I don't really have much time to play video games anymore. <laughs> um, so when I do play Warcraft, I tend to play the newer content rather than uh, go back to the old stuff. But every now and again, I go back and I'm like, I'm just go back for five minutes and see if it's there. As if I'm going to actually get it in five minutes when mm-hmm. people have spent 10 years trying to find the damn thing. So no, I don't think I will get it either. My thanks to Pete Etchells for joining me this week. And you can find details of his book in this week's episode description on The Guardian website. 
What are your early memories of playing video games? Send them over to me at chipspodcast at theguardian.com. Chips is produced by Danielle Stevens. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.